Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. I hope everyone's well with the week off in between. We're actually doing this on time, the way we're supposed to again. So let's dive in, before we lose it. Uh, First segment is Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight, we are profiling an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-oriented card that I feel like are worth more either in gameplay or just from a pure interest or fun factor than their price tag would suggest. For starters, 
for uncommon, we're going to look at Burning Inquiry. Burning Inquiry is a one mana red sorcery that reads, each player draws three cards, then discards three cards at random. So, it's just such a wild, interesting design that really just took a lot of us a long time to appreciate. I tried to play this card when it was in standard, I'm not ashamed to admit that, as technically this is a common, but whatever, it's, it's an enabler for so many things, it is so good at what it does. It's an honorary uncommon because of the, the power level that it holds. But it, it's one of those kinds of cards that just takes a long time to get enough pieces into the game, I guess, to really maximize its potential. And it's a card I would love to see get a reprint just to put it into a format like Pioneer. And just obviously make sure Standard doesn't have a bunch of graveyard shenanigans. But it enables a host of synergies from cards like Flameblade Adept to Hollow One, Bloodgast, puts a bunch of cards in the graveyard for Gurmag Angler. Like this thing plus Gurmag, or this thing plus a fetch land on turn one gives you a turn two Tassiger. This thing on turn one plus another fetch land on turn two gives you a Gurmag Angler on turn two. So even if you don't hit the nuts with it and get multiple hollow ones into play, it's still very good at setting up some sort of unfair, degenerate, like, build this board that you have to break with cards that are not available for a couple more turns kind of strategy. It also enables, not for nothing, it helps enable the next card on this list, and what more can you ask for a, from a card that is one mana and two dollars? I mean, come on. It has the words draw three cards on it, first of all. And then it enables all these other wild synergies. And, the, and there's just some small part of the word random that just makes my heart happy. <laughs> Goblin Lore was going to be on this list, but I decided to go with a different one for a rare. And that rare is Flamewake Phoenix. Now, Flamewake Phoenix is a rare from Fate Reforged. Uh, printed mana cost is three and a red, two, two flying haste. And at the beginning of combat on your turn, if this creature is in your graveyard, you can pay and you control a creature with power four or greater. You can pay a red to return this creature from the graveyard to the battlefield. So, right away, this is a classic case of a payoff being way cheaper than its enabler. For reference, Burning Inquiry being one of the, one of the easiest ways to enable this card, but it accidentally getting discarded and then you get to dump a bunch of Hollow Ones or a giant Delve creature into play following it up by being able to get the Flamewake Phoenix out of your graveyard. Burning Inquiry is $2. Flamewake Phoenix is $0.50. It's kind of, a, kind of a discrepancy there. It's the original Burb for Modern. 
and it's surprisingly easy to switch on even if you're not playing specifically the hollow one deck there's a lot of two mana creatures that can get to four power before combat or during combat cards as disparate as uh, voltaic brawler uh You know, we, we've got a couple of really good ones in standard at three mana in Bone Crusher Giant Lovestruck Beast. I mean, there's there's a collection, and then you've got kind of mopey creatures in other strategies that work really really well with Flamewake Phoenix, like Blood Rage Brawler. A card I had to look up because I couldn't remember the name of it because I've only ever played it in Amonkhet Limited. But in conjunction with Flamewake Phoenix, it's actually super cute. Because Blood Rage Brawler needs a discard and is a 4-3, which means your Flamewake Phoenix can come back. So even if you don't, you know, the, the safest play, obviously, is to just cast the Brawler on turn three, and then it resolves, you move to combat, get the Phoenix back attack. But, like, the fact of the matter is, it is pleasantly, surprisingly easy to turn this thing on, whether through graveyard shenanigans involving Delve creatures, or things like Vengevine, or just casting big dumb creatures that don't cost a lot of mana either way it is all too happy to apply an extra shock to your opponent's face and you can't really ask much more than that for 50 cents moving on to our mythic we go from the payoff card that is way cheaper than its enablers to an enabler that is way cheaper than all of its payoff cards and the card we're talking about is Indomitable Creativity. And I didn't do this on purpose, but we're apparently very red this week on Homeward Path. Uh, Indomitable Creativity is red, red, red X. Destroy uh, X target artifacts. The controller of those artifacts reveals cards from the top of their library until they hit another artifact or creature. Put that card into play, or put that card onto the battlefield and then put the rest on the bottom in a random order. So, again, this is the other side of the enabler payoff price index. Uh, being $3.50 compared to basically every big dumb creature you could possibly want to play being not $3.50. Cards like Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger, cards like Emrakul the Promised End, cards like Platinum Imperium, like whatever whatever big dumb thing tickles your fancy indomitable creativity that is going to find it for you is probably way cheaper than it is this is the cheapest polymorph from a mana cost perspective and I'm honestly expecting to see more of this as we get more and more decks that include bits and pieces of the Strixhaven treasure sub-theme for Prismari colors. Because, frankly, like, this is just a super sweet concept, right? Like, the ability to just play a polymorph package in your blue-red control deck. 
Like we've done way worse than that before. I am a I, as as someone who has played that more than their fair share of madcap experiment into platinum Empyrean and modern. Being able to indomitable creativity into whatever I decide to build as the linchpin of a blue-red control deck seems really, really enticing. And Narset can find it, Narset can find it, and put the piece that it's going to find on the bottom. Like, just everything about that screams infinite value. And, again, it's a mythic that costs 350 And no, I'm not going to make the South Park reference. And last but not least, our commander card of the week is Omen Machine. Omen Machine is a six mana artifact. Players can't draw cards. Those are the first words that appear on this card's text line. So that's already made me a few enemies just by saying those words out loud. Players can't draw cards. And then it says at the beginning of each player's draw step, that player reveals the top card of their library. If it's a land, they put it into play. If it's not, cast it for free. Uh, cast that spell without paying its mana cost. To use the correct terminology. So, how many commanders does this thing just stop? Tatiova, Chulane, Niv Mizzet, Tat, um, I already said Tatiova, Gitrog Monster, uh, <laughs> just a litany of the cards people play in their commander decks, especially in blue where you really want to draw cards I mean, it just it, it just says no any wheel deck just any of them it just says no no, you're not going to wheel everybody no windfalls for you no Nekusar damage for you Nobody's drawing cards. It's not happening. Just grinds those style of decks to an absolute screeching halt. And I'm kind of here for it because a lot of those decks are rather unfair. But it goes deeper than that. Because you can combine it with cards like Teferi, Mage of Jalfir. Players can only cast spells at sorcery. Your, your opponents can only cast spells at sorcery speed. And then all of your stuff has flash. Well, if they can only cast spells at sorcery speed, that means they can't cast spells in their draw phase. Because sorcery speed mandates you to only using your main phase. And only while the stack is empty. So, they just don't get to do anything with Omen Machine on the table. Uh, Teferi Time Raveler has the same stipulation. Droneth Magistrate says players can't cast, your opponents can't cast spells from anywhere other than their hand. So in addition to shutting down adventures and emergent ultimatum in standard, it creates a hard lock alongside Omen Machine in Commander. Who knew? I, I, I did, but I'm sharing that knowledge with you. So, 
you know, if you ever really want to make sure that nothing bad ever happens, spend $1 and get your Omen machine. So moving from a card that you're intending to play to keep your opponent from playing Magic, let's go on to talk about our Brew of the Week, which is a deck that wants to make sure nobody plays Magic. Not even you. And that deck is Lantern Control in Modern. Now this is going to come with a caveat. This deck obviously has a pedigree. It is a very well-known commodity in the history of Magic, including a Pro Tour win. But, hear me out. If you have the budget, it's not a bad place to start. If you've never played, you know, if, if you've only, if you only understand sort of the surface level applications of most modern decks, it's an interesting deck to use to learn the format with, wherein you die a bunch while everybody kills you, but then you figure out how they kill you and then you don't die that way anymore. And for the uninitiated, let me explain how this deck works. The core concept is you use a combination of Lantern of Insight, which has both players play with their top cards revealed, And your little mill rocks in Pixis of Pandemonium and Codex Shredder. Well, if Codex Shredder makes target player mill a card, and then uh, Pixis has each player exile a card, or maybe it's the other way around, uh, maybe Pixis has target player exile a card from the top of the library, and then uh, Codex Shredder mills both of you. I can't remember which way it goes there. Codex Shredder also has the ability to put cards back into your deck. So even in the even in the rare occasion where you accidentally get ahead of your opponent on the mill count, you can always crack your Codex Shredder and shuffle everything back in, and that'll get you there. So the the reason you want to use those things in conjunction with each other, these mill rocks alongside your lantern is if you're both playing with your top card revealed and you have the ability to make players mill at instant speed, you get to control what your opponent draws. During your opponent's upkeep, you get to see what's on top of their library. You can mill it away if it's something that scares you or if it's something that will break the lock. You can mill it away. That I don't want you to draw that a braid. No, get that out of here. No, I don't want you to draw that. Get that out of here. Get it. Get, get it. It's gone. No, you can't have that. And then you couple it with cards like Witchbane Orb, which says the important line of text on Witchbane Orb is you have Hexproof. It also destroys all curses attached to you. It's less an issue with regard to modern play. Or Ensnaring Bridge, which is three mana... Creatures with power greater than the number of cards in your hand cannot attack you. And all your stuff costs, like, nothing. One and two mana. It's painfully easy to dump your hand once you start rolling. 
And then you play Chalice of the Void, which will protect you against spells that will break the lock. Now again, Ensnaring Bridge isn't cheap, neither is Chalice of the Void, but if you've got the budget, the way this deck wins is by making your opponent frustrated enough to quit. Like, the entire purpose of this deck is to not die. That is 100% of what you're interested in. Your win condition is not dying. And that opens up a whole world of opportunity when it comes to modern because there are so many decks whose entire focus in life is to kill you as quickly as possible. And if you can shut that down, grind the game to a screeching halt, and then just make your focal point be, don't kill me. It's a really interesting place to be because it's like you're playing two different games at that point. Now, you obviously find all your missing pieces via cards like Ancient Stirrings, which looks at your top five cards. You can choose a colorless card from among them, put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom. Or War of Invention, which for uh, blue, blue, blue X can go find an artifact with uh, mana value X or less, and it has improvised so your other artifacts can help you pay for it. Which is neat. You know, you can use your mill rocks in a pinch to go get your ensnaring bridge to make sure you don't die. Your chalice is tapped for mana now. Like, we live in it now. So the entire purpose of this deck is just to make sure nobody plays magic. And I know that sounds terrible, but again, it won a Pro Tour in the hands of Luis Salvato. Uh, Pro Tour Rivals of Ixalan. It's, it's the kind of deck that just, from an outlook perspective, moving on to where, you know, where I would normally put outlook, I'm not doing a customization because this deck basically doesn't have any flex slots because every card is chosen for a very specific purpose. But, honestly, like for an outlook on this deck, it has the pedigree winning Pro Tour Rivals of Ixalan, and since then it's only lost Mox Opal to the ban list. That's it. And yes, Mox Opal is a blow, but it also lowers the price tag in the deck a little bit. And as a deck you can use to learn about modern while giving yourself a very clear plan against any opponent, it's reasonable. And what I mean by that is... It's a deck that has very clearly defined outs to very clearly defined situations. The best way I can describe it is think of it like, uh, to make the sports analogy, it's, or not to make, to make a reference to a TV show. Uh, there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which Data is going up against uh, one of Starfleet's leading tacticians uh, to test himself in a game called Stratagema, and the first time they, they face off against each other, they're both trying to win as quickly as possible. And Data gets absolutely crushed. 
And then the events of the episode unfold, and at the end of the episode, Data rematches against the against the same opponent. And as you watch the game go on, the opponent gets more and more and more and more and more frustrated, angry, more animated in, in the gestures of the game. And then finally, takes his equipment off, throws it down on the table, and storms out of the mess hall. And they asked Data what he did. He said, well, I, I altered my strategy. My, my adversary was going into this game expecting me to be playing the same way they were, playing to win. But instead, I chose at every possible opportunity to play for a stalemate. I would make sacrifices in the short term in the hopes of prolonging the game in order to reach a standpoint where nothing's happening. I was playing a different game than he was. And that's what you get to do with Lantern Control. You are playing a different game than any opponent you will play against. They came to play Magic. I'm not really sure what we call what you're doing. So it's a reasonable plan because your approach to the game is very simple, very straightforward, very linear. Stay alive. By whatever means necessary, I have to figure out how you can kill me in the short term and make sure it doesn't happen. And then I have to figure out how you can kill me in the long term and make sure it doesn't happen and eventually you will run out of cards and die. That's the goal. Because you don't have another way to win. And again, that's a reasonable place to be going into modern blind as long as you don't value having friends. There's going to be a lot of people mad at you. And that's okay. If you can live with that or you, you view it the way that I would if you built into it as a means to an end, which that end is understanding the modern format more thoroughly and sort of sideboard checking your opponents. I got no beef with that. I'm going to lose to it. Probably not going to be super happy about it, but, you know, you made the right call. You piloted your deck well. It'll get you there. It is not a deck that's going to win quickly. You will probably win an unfortunate number of games or rounds in tournament play. One game win to nothing. Or one game win, one draw. So, bear that in mind, too. It's going to be a taxing experience. All your rounds are going to go to time. Live with that. Live in that energy. But, again, you can do a lot worse if you've got the money or you've got the, you've got the cards but don't know what to do with them. You can do worse than Lantern Control. Like, it's really weird to see a core engine that's so cheap and then backed up by these obnoxiously expensive cards that allow it to function as a hard lock piece. It's just, it's, it's such a weird deck all the way around. I, I really want to know who came up with like, 
where this thing came from, who hurt them, to make them decide that their goal in playing Magic was to make sure that nobody played Magic with them ever again. <laughs> so, moving on from one from a deck that doesn't want you to play Magic to a governing body that doesn't seem to want you to be able to play Magic, it's time to dive into the main topic, and this week I am finally going after the, or giving my thoughts on the state of organized play. I have not done this since the announcement came down the pipe about the removal of MPL and Rivals. No announcement for what is replacing it. The removal of the prize pool of a quarter or three quarters of a million dollars from the world's prize pool. There's no announcement as to what's going to replace those things yet. Like, quite frankly, the easiest way to sum up the recent activity of the Wizards of the Coast organized play system is it is sending a very clear message that professional magic as we knew it is dead. There is no longer a scenario where you can be a professional tournament magic player for a living. But I hate to tell you all this, this isn't exactly a sudden development. This didn't come on out of nowhere. And it didn't start at the pro level. Because Wizards has been doing this gradually. They've been chipping away at it for a long time. It goes back at least a decade. Because when I first started playing Magic in 2004 and started really paying attention to the competitive side of things in 2005, at my local game store we had the player rewards program available wherein for every so many F&Ms you went to in a month, Wizards would just send you a free card in the mail. Just like, hey, here's this card, thanks for playing tournaments. And it was a, a textless promo of a, of a popular card. Just a really cool concept, right? You can get cards like Damnation if you went to 20 of them. In the, or I guess it wasn't a month. It was over the course of the, the quarter, I think it was. So if you played, essentially if you played every week, you could get a textless version of a, of a potentially very expensive card. So you would get your money back from your entry fees, essentially. They also had, uh, you know, bolstered box allocations for local game stores for price support purposes. Uh, the process to become a Wizards Premier Store was a little daunting for some, but it was, it was possible to dip your toe in the water pretty easily. And then eventually things started to change. The first thing that I remember being a clear sign of the decline of organized play 
was when Wizards of the Coast announced the end of the player rewards program. Because for us, it was something we, you know, we weren't, like, dependent upon it. It wasn't something we were looking at at the F&M level and going, oh, this is ridiculous. How am I going to pay my bills now? No. But it was something they were doing that was really nice for the players that were getting it. And they said, well, we're going to take the money from that program, which honestly is kind of hemorrhaging money because we're paying all these people to print these cards and send these cards out and design these, you know, to, to do the art for the cards and to determine which card it's going to be and to track everything, you know. We can repurpose those people and we can take the money from the, the program itself. We can take that program's budget and kick it up the road or up the, the hill to the higher levels of organized play. We can put more money into Grand Prix and uh, PTQ, Grand Prix, and Pro Tour prize supports. We're like, okay, fine, whatever. Not a super big deal. As long as I can get into one of those events, maybe do well enough for it to matter, who cares, right? Well, then we moved up a level there. I have vivid memories of playing a 200-person PTQ at Misty Mountain Games in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I, I won for that event. But I remember having 200 people crammed into, a lo into an expanded seating area of a local game store for a PTQ. And then Wizards said, ah, you know, the original PTQ system, let's cut that, let's replace it with a bunch of smaller tournaments. So instead of having a single 200 person PTQ, we'll have a bunch of like 40, 50 person PPTQs, preliminary PTQs. And then if you win one of those, you can move on to the next level and go to an, a regional PTQ, which will be a little bit bigger at a, at, a, at a more centralized location in your region. I mean, I guess, okay, sure. I mean, now that basically leaves Grand Prix as the only like super big game tournament in town and you know, good way to, to meet up for big centralized, yeah, okay, whatever, it's fine. And then they eventually went back and scrapped that a couple years ago and replaced it, went right back to the streamlined PTQ system after several local game stores had become fairly reliant on the PPTQ system to help drive attendance at their stores. Well, now they couldn't use attendance at that local store to get on the to, to try to get into the high levels of professional play, so why would they bother? I'll just sit at home and test online and get ready for the next tournament that I care about. It also just created a system that removed incentive for competitive players at the LGS level. Between the loss of uh, ELO as a benchmark for invitations, and the loss of they had like the FNM champion through the Planeswalker points program. I don't even remember if that ever actually amounted to anything. 
it was just this weird situation where they gradually eroded at the clear, transparent picture of how to get to the highest level. That, to answer the question, how do you become a pro Magic player, became a much more difficult thing to do as time wore on. There for a little while, it was like, okay, win a PTQ, then uh, either place at this level at the Pro Tour, or put you know this many consistent finishes together to stay on, and you get to this level, which gives you an appearance fee, which makes you just enough money to keep going back to the tournaments and then as long as you place somewhere in the middle you can make enough money to survive but that picture got muddied several times over let's add an extra layer of com of uh of qualification to that let's let's get everybody accustomed to doing that and then take it away let's you know it just keeps it, the picture kept changing. The goalpost got moved further away, then moved closer, then moved further away, then moved closer. It just didn't make any sense. And then finally, they just tore the whole thing down. They said, get out of here, Pro Players Club. Uh, we're not going to let your ability to, to live playing Magic be dictated by anything as crazy as consistent tournament finishes. They removed the coverage from the Grand Prix scene, which turned Grand Prix basically into really, really big old-school PTQs now. You'd have 700 players in the room, 1,000 players in the room, with eight Pro Tour slots on the, on the docket, but nobody got to see how it was going. There was no star power building in that. So it just another way of becoming relevant, you know, potentially helping launch a streaming career, potentially helping launch a content creation career by getting your name out there. It's gone. It folded all high-end play under one umbrella, that umbrella being the Magic Fest. Grand Prix, Pro Tours, Mythic Invitationals, it doesn't matter. It's a high-level professional tournament. But we're also going to have all these side events and command fests and artists. And, like, I love the idea of Big Magic Tournament is an experience for everybody, not just the people participating in it. I like that. Do not get me wrong about that. Because they are for everybody. They're not just for the participants. But they needed to do a better job treating it like that. They aggressively pushed Arena as their primary public gameplay mode. Between removing Grand Prix coverage, uh, using Rivals and MPL as, you know, the streaming, the, the free advertising revenue. It wasn't free, they were paying them, but like, brutal streaming hours that they had to keep up with. They had to, they had to stream in order to push the game. The several of the Mythic Invitation, like the Mythic Invitationals and some of the Mythic Championships taking place exclusively on Arena. It just created a different sort of atmosphere around the game than we've been accustomed to. And it pushed more people toward the digital side of Magic than it did the tabletop, which inherently is not great for the local game store. And I've 
I've been on the other side of this. I said, you know, the LGS can survive. But as someone who just lost my LGS recently, uh, back in December, they closed their doors. I obviously have a little bit of a different perspective on this now. Um, and then, obviously, COVID, the, the worldwide panini, did not help matters at all. Because now players couldn't go to the local game store. So we just had to play online. We couldn't, we, you know, they did things like the pre-release at home where you could go pick up a pre-release kit from your LGS to try to help them keep the doors open. That's admirable. But it's not the same as them getting their snack revenue or their tournament revenue or being able to hold 1Ks. You know, it's just not the same. That coupled with the overall just sort of explosion of arena as a popular uh, medium, it, it made it difficult to justify any other form of magic. And that's not great for the future of organized play because they've said several times over they want to prioritize keeping paper around, and I love that. There's nothing quite like paper magic, and I'm glad they, they, they say they appreciate that fact, but based on actions, it's kind of hard to prove that they do. Kind of hard to prove they appreciate that, because a lot of the actions that have been taken feel like they are strictly to not promote it. But, even with all of this, there is reason for hope. There's reason for hope. I'm going to say it again. Because them just getting it out in the open paints a much clearer picture. You know, Wizards of the Coast says, hey, we're, we're not supporting people's decisions to try to play this game for a living anymore that's that's we're going to pass the buck to somebody else to do that okay now that we've got a clear picture of that now we can try to you know we, we have people that can take steps to do that and new organized play providers have really stepped up to do that in particular inside esports runs fantastic tournaments on uh mtg melee and arena mtg melee themselves have proven to be very effective as an alternative to traditional tournament venues uh the ability to play big tournaments online for real prizes is a big deal to a lot of people and then star city games both in the in the digital content that they've been doing for a little while, the digital events that they've been doing during the pandemic, but now also being the chance to be the first game back on the other side of it and be the, the leader in the clubhouse, as it were, for tournament circuits. It's kind of a big deal because they've got the most experience so they've got the biggest the, the they've got the the best game in in the they got the best game in the game as it were 
when it comes to trying to create an, uh, an organized play environment for people who want to play high-level competitive magic with major stakes on the line, they've kind of been doing it the longest out of the people that are left. If, if Wizards doesn't want to do it anymore, that's fine. But at least now we know, and we can move forward with trying to establish some of these other brands as the premier. And I would argue there for a while, Star City Games events were as competitive or more so than a lot of the Pro Series events. Just a lot of their players were more dedicated to the brand that Star City was trying to build so they didn't go play these bigger events. They've also started doing more of a... They've created some incentives to try to entice players at the FNM and LGS level again. Things like uh, old border promos with freedom of how they're given out by the store owner. And, like, you get these promos, you can give them out however you want to. The return of in-store play, uh, coupled with an overwhelming desire to see it come back. Uh... The wider array of formats available to paper compared to arena, especially, and then even just the the bugginess and general malaise that is Magic Online when it comes to playing tournaments on Magic Online is just kind of painful sometimes. But the other thing is, and this is kind of both a reason for hope and a reason to despair a little bit, competitive Magic is changing. What, that, what those words together mean, the definition of the term competitive magic is changing. Even without massive events, formats are churning at breakneck speed. Standard feels like it gets solved three weeks after a set comes out. We already know what the best decks are. They jockey for position until the next set comes out. With a few exceptions... Uh, Kaldheim was kind of a breath of fresh air because we got uh, some old decks that didn't get any new cards, but because of the way the format shifted a little bit, it created an opening for a deck like Cycling to come back and do well with a new configuration. But for the most part, like Standard as a format feels like it gets solved really quickly. Modern as a format feels like it gets solved at the high level really quickly everybody figures out what the most busted thing is and then there's just a whole lot of interplay between everybody below that this also includes limited limited formats are getting played and tested and solved faster than ever before you get players fighting over the best deck or players who know that if everybody else is fighting over this one you need to default into this one if it's available Players as a whole just quickly gravitate to best deck, I use air quotes there, best deck options more quickly. This creates openings, even in solved formats, for players who major in one to two decks, rather than constantly churning with the top of the format. I.e., a really good example is someone who has majored in stuff, you know, someone who's majored in cycling and gruel. Cycling's the grindier of the two. Gruel is the, the aggro. And you just pick your deck for the week, right? You just pick which one's good for that week. And go play it. You know, do you want to Embercleave people or do you want to 
make a bunch of tokens with Improbable Alliance and Valiant Rescuer. I don't know. That's up to you. With less huge events, less Grand Prix, less Pro Tours, means the potential for better and more players to become interested in brewing rather than having this hyper-focus on tuning the best, more established decks. Now, there's still going to be plenty of people who want to do that because, frankly, building a new deck is hard. Building a new deck that's good is even harder. And you can count me among the people who typically try to lean toward tuning until I see what the format's about and then I start playing around with stuff. And then perhaps the biggest reason for hope all the way around is with this massive hole left where the old organized play system used to be, there's now so much space for LGS owners to come out and say, hey, this is going to be a really cool thing we can do. It was an idea that was actually pitched by my former LGS owner a few years ago. Uh, and he said he was going to reach out. And then, of course, a whole bunch of stuff happened and we couldn't do that. But it, the idea was to reach out to game store owners across the state of Tennessee. And to set up an event series that was at one store one week and another store the next week and another store the week after that and so on and so forth, sort of create a state tour of LGSs with prizes on the line, and you know, like a, a, a 1K series going across the state. And then at the end of it, do a 10K at a, at a centralized location for the, the people with X number of points from the tournament series. And I thought that was a really cool idea and a really interesting alternative to trying to travel the entire country to go to these SCG events or Grand Prix to try to grind your way into the Pro Tour. It's just a cool way to play Magic with people that are relatively close by. You can draw some people from out of state you still get that sort of the, the feeling, even without being a, a quote-unquote proper professional, of being able to play at these events that are relatively easy for you to drive to. And you get a chance to win a, non, a, a not unsubstantial amount of money. Like it creates an incentive at the local level, at the state level, at the regional level. To try setting up independent tournament circuits. So I guess my challenge to all of you, as opposed to trying to do like a brief synopsis here at the end of everything that's gone on, because I just really don't want to talk about this again. I tried to do this after I'd had time to let it marinate. And for those of you who know what I do for a living, those words are hilarious to you. Uh, but I wanted to let it marinate for a little bit, kind of figure out how I really felt about it rather than just record my knee-jerk reaction and poo-poo on Watsy. I understand where their decision comes from because they just, they, they've not done a great job managing it. They know it, we know it. So why bother trying to continue doing it? So with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week. So my challenge to all of you is to try reaching out to any LGS owners you have left 
if like me your actual lgs is not there anymore reach out to the owners you have left find find people and let's try to do this let's try to fill that gap that's been created by the departure of the traditional organized play system let's try to find a way to make the game stores matter And with that, if you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, leave them down below in the comment section if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, while you're there, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, all that jazz. Uh, or you can send them to me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. You can join the conversation in the Facebook group, The Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, uh, I hope you are thinking about becoming one if you're not yet. If you're a patron of the show, you obviously have access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord, where I talk about a little bit of everything, honestly. Uh, but at $3 a week, or not a week, gosh, brain non-functional at the end of the week. Uh, $3 a month, let's clarify, $3 a month moves your submissions for Brew of the Week to the front of the line. And $5 a month, I'm going to make you your very own episode about what you want. You call the shots, I just write it and do it. If I had access to both better equipment and way better internet, it would be a co-hosting opportunity, but we just haven't gotten there yet. But, I digress. Questions, comments, concerns, that's where you can do them. Uh, don't forget to check out the sponsors. Uh, Pure MTGO, MTGO Traders is their sponsor. I'm a fan of both. Grey Viking Games, if like me you are having trouble finding something to win consistently with on Arena these days, they can help you out by giving you, uh, by getting you into some pack codes for very, very, very little money. Use the promo code HWPMTG at checkout to make it even less money, and it lets them know I sent you. So... That's all I've got for this week. There were no submissions for dad jokes. So with that, listen, things are opening back up. We're starting to see people face to face again. Everybody's been through a lot the last year and a half. So laugh hard, play magic, hug the homies, Spencer, but be kind, please. Above all the rest of them, be kind. You don't know who needs it right now. We'll catch you next episode. Be safe, everybody.